This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and I'll be talking today with David Hennig, who is an associate professor of cultural anthropology at Utrecht University. David's new book is called Remaking Muslim Lives, Everyday Islam in Postwar Bosnia and Herzegovina, and this is published in 2020 by the University of Illinois Press. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So a little bit about David Henning. He earned his PhD in social anthropology from Durham University in the UK. Uh, And he also held appointments at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London and the University of Kent. He's edited the journal History and Anthropology since 2015. Uh, In his book, which we'll talk about today, Remaking Muslim Lives, David's work explores how people remake their life worlds in the wake of dramatic societal ruptures. His published research has been focused broadly on conflict and coexistence, violence and memory, Muslim politics, revival and transnational mobility, post-socialism, charity, informal economies, military waste, and everyday diplomacy and geopolitics. Uh, He's carried out extensive field work. I'm really impressed by this in Bosnia and Herzegovina and rural spaces, especially, and studied the transformation of political economy and the reconfiguration of religious institutions and practices in the face of political ruptures. So um, his book today, it has resulted in um, or has been included in a lot of different journals, many articles, special issues. I'm really happy to talk with him today about remaking Muslim lives. So let's start, David, if we can, with your field work. Um, can you talk about when you started your field work in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and, and what led you to do it? Sure. Um, so maybe I will start with uh, the second part of your question. Uh, so I have been uh, interested probably for the last 20 years or so in uh, the ways in which uh, religion re-emerged, religious life re-emerged in the post-socialist context. And I have traveled to various parts of the region, not only not only Bosnia, but I also went to the Caucasus, Dagestan, and other places. So I've been, I've been thinking about uh, this for a really long time. And uh, Bosnia... Uh, is partly a sort of serendipity uh, and partly uh, just an interest uh, 
in a particular place where I eventually conducted my field work that uh, is is usual and unusual at the same time because the the place I talk about uh, in my book has uh, experienced not only the socialist rupture and the rupture related to the war, but it's also a place that has a long continuity of, of religious practice that is connected to the arrival of the Ottomans, actually, to the region. So uh, my fieldwork started in 2008, uh, and I've been coming back and forth, basically, between Bosnia and wherever I've been based since uh, since 2008 until, until present. So my, my questions for you in doing this fieldwork are about place and then um, I would say about the people. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you have a particular region in central Bosnia and you have a village, as far as I understand, which is, um, which is fictional, but it's based on all of your work and it's a Muslim-only village of about 250 inhabitants. Could you describe that to our, our readers? What, what, is this, what is this place like? Sure. Um, so um, I started this project in one particular village, uh, but uh, from the beginning, I've been interested more in, in the whole area. So it, the area is called the Zvezda Highlands. Um, Zvezda actually means a sort of star, so because the, the, the highlands have a sort of star shape, like uh, sort of uh, horizon, uh, at least that how it looks like from the village where I was based. Um, and I traveled extensively across the region and uh, spent a lot of time in various villages. They are all very, very similar. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I would say that uh, villages uh, in this region look very much like uh, many villages across Eastern European countryside. Um, so experiences with... Uh, sort of socialist sort of uh, experiments in, in, in economy. Um, and, and of course, uh, the, the post-socialist slash post-war landscape, uh, many empty houses, many destroyed houses, uh, a high level of unemployment, um, and increasingly uh, out-migration from, from the region uh, as well. Uh, so uh, everyday, everyday life in these places. Um, is first and foremost a struggle uh, to get by uh, for everyone, and uh, people people try to find their ways, um, as I describe in the book. So, various forms of informal economy, uh, various forms of uh, very precarious precarious jobs, uh, mainly in the timber industry, um, uh, and of course. Uh, a significant uh, number of uh, villagers also rely on the pension uh, benefits that are related to war injuries as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, the statistics about unemployment are, are quite stunning. Um, almost 60%, right? Or six out of 10 men. Yeah. What's the situation with precarity? Has that, how's that, let's say, evolved since the mm-hmm. 1960s? Modernization and, and then, of course, after the after the Dayton Accords. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a great question uh, because one thing I'm I'm trying to do in the book is 
to present not a, a sort of snapshot of one year that I would spend in the village, but I really try to trace much sort of longer uh, historical sort of continuities in these uh, in these villages. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, post Second World War experience uh, or experiences in these villages uh, are uh, sort of the early process of modernization that came with Tito. So there are very lively memories of the first schools being opened in the villages, first roads being built in the late 60s, uh, first opportunities for uh, male villagers uh, to go working abroad uh, as Gastarbeiters uh, in, in, in Germany. So there has been a lot of transnational uh, labor mobility uh, right. since, since the right. 60s. Um, and since the 70s, when the flow of workers uh, to Germany decreased, so uh, the new opportunities in the Middle East, and that's where also, for example, the, the Muslim context comes into it in an interesting way, also opened. So quite a few villagers uh, from the region spent some time in, in Iraq, in, um, in Libya, and in, in other places uh, in the Middle East. Um, and uh, and in the in the eighties, uh, a significant number, so another generation basically of villagers, started uh, working in 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 the factories uh, that were producing Volkswagen uh, cars uh, nearby Sarajevo. Mm -hmm. So Same, again, the yeah. kind of interesting German German uh, Yugoslav connection there. Um, what what happened what happened afterwards is again a sort of typical story. That uh, obviously during during the war uh, there was no no production in this regard. But after after the war, what followed uh, uh, is uh, a rapid privatization, like in other places across Eastern 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 Europe, as communist Europe, where basically very non-transparent uh, privatization factories basically. Uh, went bankrupt, uh, expensive equipment uh, stolen. Uh, and it then affected villagers because they, they lost, they lost these, these job opportunities. So what is emerging in the early 2000s uh, as a sort of typical feature of many villages in this, uh, in this region is uh, first sort of private uh, sawmill factories, uh, little sort of factories, uh, Usually every village has at least one, but again, the, the opportunity for people to work there is that it's, it's a very random, precarious job without any insurance, health insurance, pension insurance. And usually, uh, of officially, three to five people work there, but in fact, it could be up to, up to 15 uh, to 20. Uh, but the mm. level of unemployment is still very high. And this is also one of the many reasons why uh, so many so many people are uh, leaving the villages uh, for good, uh, as I yeah. also talk about in the book. Yeah. Um, could you introduce for us your chapters? So I know that you have two parts, and it, it's an interesting question for me about land and property. You start with, mm -hmm. you have a lot of inter interlocutors, but you start with a chapter called Houses in Flames. Mm -hmm. And um, so could you could you talk about how you arranged the book in, in the two parts about experience and piety and exchange and what, sure. what were the choices you made? Yeah, so um, so I should probably begin with that 
obviously the book as such, the project started uh, with my interest uh, in in the anthropology of religion and in particular anthropology of pilgrimage and ritual and you know the usual things that anthropologists study and uh, but since my arrival to 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 the region and to to these villages i i realized that i can't ignore all these other things we've been talking about so far so then it became also a challenge how how to integrate these kind of aspects of everyday life if you will the the religious and the political economy aspect of, of everyday life Together, so uh, the book is uh, divided into, uh, as you said, two parts. The first one uh, is called "Making and Unmaking Village Lives," and uh, the second part is called uh, "Vital Exchange," uh, which is a way in which I try to write about uh, the lived experience of religion. Um, so, in the first part, I pay more attention to the transformation of political economy as it is experienced on the ground uh, in the villages. So uh, I, I look from the perspective of individual households first, then I move to the level of, of, of neighborhoods and, and, and sociality outside of uh, sort of kinship relations. And, and, the, and the third chapter in this part is looking into the wider area of um, what we could call moral economy in the village. Um, mm that somehow sort of reflects both the, the, the family relationships, the social relationships outside of family uh, into a sort of wider context of a uh, very sort of neoliberal, neoliberal economy of the Bosnian state and the ways in which people sort of try to navigate, uh, right. navigate that. And, and of course, right. uh, they make, and that's one of the important things uh, thing I, I, I try to show in the book, is that people do make sense uh, to these changes in the mm. language uh, imaginings of social uh, of religious experience. Yeah? So the, the vocabulary that they themselves kind of use to make sense of these things is kind of drawn from, uh, let's say, religious, religious vocabulary. Um, yeah. Which is I, something... I mean... Sorry. No, go ahead. I, I, I'd like to sort of go through some of the chapters yeah. um, step by step. So, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was just thinking about the, the way that you conceptualize the rural, mm-hmm. especially in the in the first part of the book, because mm-hmm. as you say, you're, you're covering political economy, but it's also moral economy. Mm-hmm. And I think you're dealing in, in many really interesting ways with the stereotypes that even anthropologists have carried about the rural as parochial and isolated and somehow cut off. So I, I wonder if you could introduce that through your stories. Could you could you give us an idea of some of your interlocutors and, and how you actually get inside of both the political economy and the moral economy of these of these areas? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so as you said, uh, what uh, what I try to show in the book uh, is that, um, well, what is interesting, I'll put it that way. What is interesting is that, uh, uh, as, you can, as you can imagine, uh, there has been quite a lot uh, published on uh, places like, like Bosnia, um, but uh, very little actually uh, about uh, what we could call rural lives or rural areas uh, of these of these places uh, 
in the post-war slash post-socialist context, which is really interesting, firstly, compared with other places in Eastern Europe, uh, but it's also interesting uh, in regard to the fact that uh, the rural life or rural areas uh, constitute more more than still half of the population, actually. Um, yeah. And I, I think uh, that partly uh, the reason for that is that there is in anthropology uh, a certain, um, let's say, uh, attitude towards studying rural areas uh, in, in, in the present, which basically is that uh, it is associated exactly with what you said, uh, something very isolated, cut off, you know, these bigger sort of flows and things that are happening in the world um, that anthropologists, and it is true in the past, often uh, studied villages as isolated, bounded places, um, mm-hmm. kind of cut off these external external uh, processes and affairs. Um, but what I, what I try to show in the book is that <clears throat> uh, a village is a perspective on these global transformations. So right. these places are uh, remote in certain imagination. That's true, uh, but uh, for some people, but villagers don't see it as uh, being cut off or remote from these from these affairs. So I do actually start uh, the book, for example, with this story of um, of a friend of mine who is a who is an elderly villager in his in his early sixties, who kind of walks me <clears throat> through the landscape, through the village landscape, uh, through the fields that have, have belonged to his family for many generations. And, and at one moment, he's kind of staring at the horizon as we are talking about random things. And he's telling me, Bosnia is like a Bedley Park car. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, it has Great always metaphor. obstructed somewhere and, some, and somebody. So what can we do? Uh, we must uh, live and look ahead. And then he sort of added, inshallah, yeah, God willing, uh, everything will be fine. So kind mm. of merging on the one hand, these, let's say, different uh, sensibilities, sort of sensibility and very kind of conscious geopolitical sensibility to the position of Bosnia as a place, uh, meaning both his village, but also the country uh, where all these experiences like with the Ottomans, the First World War, Second World War, Cold War, uh, neoliberal transformations, they are all somehow part of the landscape on wh- where we were walking and, and moving through. So this is very much sort of part of lived experience. Um, so villagers themselves don't, don't see as being cut of these, uh, of these wider transformations. And that's also something I try to, I try to show in these, in these different chapters. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I want to turn really there. I think that's a good opportunity for us to talk about Islam and Muslims in Southeast Europe. So, you know, I mean, you start with um, certain stereotypes like Ernest Gellner, how he was wrong. <laughs> I think he was wrong um, about many things um, regarding religious experiences. But um, what what really impresses me about your book is how you get beyond the world of official piety, or I don't know if it's if it would be called institutional piety, 
um, in the villages, but you have a rich glossary with so many different words um, on neighborhood, on care, on mutuality. Um, so c- could you in- maybe introduce how you approach the study of religious practices, um, especially in, at the village level in, in, in mm-hmm. part one? How did you do that? Um, well, the, the, the easiest thing would be to say that I, I, I do listen and observe what, what people do and what, what matters uh, to them. Uh, but that's a kind of textbook answer that probably you would hear from you know, uh, sort of yeah. anthropological research methods. So what does it mean in practice? Well, I think what was really important for me uh, from the very beginning was that <clears throat> when I started reading about places, um, about Islam in Southeast Europe, um, I, I would say... 99% or 98 I don't know of of the of the de- of the literature of the debates is about uh identity yeah muslim identity that everything has to be basically about muslim identity and what it means in places like bosnia uh in practice is that uh, it's a study of how people understand themselves as different from others meaning christians orthodox or croats or serbs but that wasn't something that would be a matter of the sort of everyday, everyday concern. That's not how, for example, pietists mm-hmm. uh, understood or articulated. What, what, what is everyday concern is how to live, how to be a certain kind of person. Um, yeah. And this, is, this was the starting point for me. So rather than, starting, uh, rather than asking who I am in terms of identity, uh, I I was sort of listening or trying to listen and observe rather how people uh, sort of find a practical answer to the question how to live and what kind of vocabularies, practices uh, people employ to sort of answer to this question. And that's where all these concepts that you mentioned started yeah. emerging. Um like for could, example, could you could you yeah could you introduce some of them? I mean, I you have sevap, right? Sevap, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What are what are some of these um, ethical practices? I mean, some are the are, uh, along the five pillars of, of Islam, right? But what what yeah. are they? So uh, so for example, uh, I I write quite a lot uh, about uh, what we can call the economy of good deeds, um, which is a very important. That's the concept of sevap. Um, and it basically uh, refers to a range of range of acts, uh, practices, uh, whereby uh, you just uh, you just perform, do good deeds without uh, without any particular uh, sort of interest or calculation in mind. So I give these examples of you know uh, a friend of mine who who is a, also a beekeeper. Uh, when mm-hmm. uh, his bees, when there's a good season, um, and he he has uh, uh, enough honey uh, to put aside for his family and to to sell to make a little bit of profit, then part of part of the part of the yields are distributed in the neighborhood for free because it's a gift from Allah. Um, right. So you share it. Uh, so it's a type of economy of sharing, for example. Or if you happen to have a tractor in the village and there is a there is a heavy snowfall 
then you just take your tractor without asking and you just go and just clean the streets uh, mm-hmm. because you do it you do it for others um, and uh, so these are the sort of everyday everyday acts uh, that that people perform um, but uh, there are there are other uh, types of good deeds such as uh, Play, uh, uh, praying for the souls of of your dead relatives, praying for the souls of of, of the martyrs uh, who died during the war, and and so on. So uh, it also kind of unfolds at different scales um, and different contexts of everyday life. But this is an important one. Um, Another one uh, I write quite extensively about in the book is uh, is is the practice of uh, dova, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, which can mean uh, various things, uh, but in general it means it means prayer. But again, prayer in 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 the sort of context of lived experience, uh, lived religious experience has multiple meanings so it doesn't only refer to five daily prayers but it can also refer that you just pass on the way to the forest uh, the local cemetery right. and you stop and you pray for the souls of the dead there because it earns not only good deeds uh, to your preparation for afterlife but it also earn, earns good deeds for the souls of the dead um, mm-hmm. but then uh, as I write later in the book uh, you have you have multiple sort of uh, outdoor prayers uh, that also people organize uh, in in the summer according to the local ritual calendar. Um, these prayers are also called dova, um, and there uh, it's linked to agricultural practice. So you you perform prayers for rain, uh, which is again linked to your daily sort of production of your of your food. Um, so it's 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 all intertwined. Um, yeah. Really. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I, I'm, I'm really interested in the chapter that you have called Halal Exchange. And mm-hmm. I know that you have um, an article published on this as well. Um, it surprised me to read about the attitudes toward um, the imams from the neighborhood. So, right. I mean, you have this concept of, of komshiluk, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of the neighborhood. Could, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the, the relationship between um, the neighborhood and its concepts of, of exchange, living the halal way, as, as you explained yeah. it. What, what, what is the economy in that sense? And what's the relationship with the, the world of the official imams, yeah. which, which they don't seem to like very much from, from your, at least the village that you studied? Yeah, it's the kind of clash, basically, what uh, we used to call between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, um, <laughs> between the world of imams and the world of yeah, sort of everyday sort of practitioners, but sure. So Komşuluk, um, which comes from from Turkish uh, origin of Turkish uh, word uh, for neighborhood, uh, again has a particular history in in in, 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 in the debates on, on on Bosnia. 
But what Komsilok basically means is a kind of moral conception of neighborhood. What, what does living in proximity, uh, physical proximity with others uh, entails? And it, it entails that you take care uh, in the lives of others, your neighbors, your next door neighbors, and so on. Um, uh, as, I, as I develop or write about in, in the book, um, when it comes to uh, halal exchange, what I, what I mean by it is that, um, that people, uh, again, do take care of their neighbors by uh, basically doing, doing things for others, uh, not expecting uh, immediate return for that. So it's, it's a kind of vernacular term for generalized reciprocity in which everyday life uh, is sort of embedded. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and in the chapter Hall Exchange, I I I, I write about uh, the the feast of sacrifice that is an annual annual important Islamic uh, ritual. Um, it takes place two months and ten days after the end of uh, Ramadan, um, when uh, Muslims go on on the pilgrimage to 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 Mecca. And what what people do locally is that they uh, they do sacrifice uh, an animal, usually usually a ram, um, and uh, one third of the sacrifice is uh, kept by the family, one third is uh, given to the poor, and one third is uh, uh, given in the neighborhood uh, to okay. your neighbors. And that's where <clears throat> the exchange basically emerges uh, because there's a particular sort of aesthetic of, of giving uh, where basically uh, you have to bring a piece of sacrifice meat to the doorstep of your neighbors um, and you have to exchange words. So you are saying halalosum and they, they have to reply kabalosum, which basically then then means you don't owe me you don't owe me anything um that's mm-hmm. the kind of like performative aspect yeah. of the ritual it's a sense of debt right exactly. or, or not not being indebted right exactly mm-hmm. there is no debt kind of created you don't owe me anything that's the kind of crucial moment and what's really important is that well you would you would expect oh you just came here so i can give you something back immediately but it it never happens you need to take your piece and go back to the neighbor to his doorstep yeah. and and perform it basically again, um, and what I realize um, afterwards is that the same kind of words also are exchanged uh, when uh, villagers are helping each other in everyday life. So when you, for example, need to bring uh, to get firewood from the forest and you don't you don't have a tractor, let's say, uh, and you ask a neighbor. Uh, to help you, um, then the whole kind of uh, exchange of help is basically performed by using the same vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of way of performing uh, that there is kind of no indebtedness uh, in, the, in the relationship. Um, why is it important or why I write about it? Uh, because it can sound as some kind of idealized sort of world of, of equality you, and so on. You've, an, you've anticipated my next question. <laughs> okay. Uh, and yeah. That's what uh, I, yeah, that's what I sort of found mo- most interesting in a way in, in this sort of study. Otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm sure yeah. I would be no, criticized that, for many and, things. And 
No, no, but I, I think that's exactly what I wanted to ask about because I've got a yeah. gender question lined up for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking at the end of your halal exchange chapter, you, you mentioned a couple of women and the, the situation of the dowry marrying yeah. outside of the village. So so what is what does that mean? You have this old Turkish Arabic concept of miraz, yeah. right? And, and the dowry. Are, are there are there families in this arena of maybe idealized mutuality that are that are trying to marry their kin out of, I mean, how, how does that work exactly? I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure I understand what, what happens when people leave the village or have an attachment yeah. beyond the village to Sarajevo. So, so basically what, what, why is this concept then important is that, uh, first of all, uh, as, as I write in the book, in the situation of increased inequalities, economic inequalities in the villages, these practices uh, allow uh, villagers in their everyday life to keep their relationship in, in somehow kind of less hierarchical, I, I will put it like that way, less hierarchical than they would normally perhaps seem. Yeah? So, so uh, these, these practices taken from, from the ritual uh, applied in the everyday concept, uh, context somehow sort of smoothen a little bit the hierarchies, especially between those who, for example, have these tractors and those who, who don't. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so that's a kind of important right. way of dealing with the kind of rising inequalities. Um, and again, uh, I'm sure some, some, some colleagues would see it simply as some kind of false consciousness because obviously you don't get rid of hierarchies as such, which is, which is true. But important is that, uh, it does work yeah, in, for, for villagers. Yeah? They, they, they see that uh, they can kind of get along uh, despite the rising inequalities exactly through some kind of shared language and, and shared moral idioms. Um, what, I, what, I, what I write about in the chapter at the end, as, as you said, is that <clears throat> um, in, especially in the situation of indebtedness in, in the villages, uh, People just try to, as I said at the beginning, try to get by, try to find a way to get by uh, no, no, no matter what. And I give this example of two women who, who married outside of the village mm-hmm. and who, uh, who got a dowry. Um, so in order to renounce uh, basically their share of the, of the family land in the village. Okay. Because because the the ideology of inheritance in in the villages is partible inheritance, so they they technically should be uh, should be given fair share like their brothers. But uh, cultural practice uh, in the villages is that uh, women move at least in the past move outside of the village, uh, didn't claim their share, uh, but were given dowry uh, as a compensation. Uh, and I described the case of two women who were given dowry as a compensation, but because of their economic situation now, they were basically trying to claim the land uh, back from from their from their brothers, and mm-hmm. it was deemed not as halal, but it was deemed as 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 haram, basically as something that is immoral. Yeah, right. Because right. Uh, because they. Uh, when they accepted the dowry, they basically uh, acknowledged that there is no there is no uh, debt, there is no demand on their part for for, for the land, and and twenty years later, um, they were making this uh, claim 
um, yeah. land uh, because of their uh, individual economic uh, precarious situation. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. That makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask you some questions about part two. So I, to make sure that we, we cover this, this section that you have about um, anxieties and the years of 1992 and 1995, could you share some of the stories about religious experience and religious practice? I, I ha- and I have in mind here, not just Ramadan and, and the importance of Ramadan, but how some of your inter- interlocutors, or at least people that you that you interviewed, um, Sadetta, for instance, would be an example. Um, see themselves in the village. What, what? Not identity per se, but how do they see themselves in their piety and practices? You have a wonderful part, I think, on on dreams and the gift economy. Um, so, what what are these? roles, let's say even visions mm-hmm. um, of a better society for those who are who are prayerful and pious? Yeah, um, no, that's a great question. And um, it kind of goes to the heart of what, what I try to sort of say when it comes to thinking and writing about 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 piety. Because as I said at the beginning, on the one hand, uh, writing about uh, Islam and Muslim communities in Southeast Europe um, <clears throat> has been by and large reduced to the debates on identity politics, which again, you know, doesn't doesn't really uh, kind of is, is not important uh, that much in, in in the villages where I've been working. But on the other hand, uh, studying piety has been uh, by many anthropologists uh, in recent years, reduced to these sort of individual practices of self-perfection, self-cultivation, uh, that you have to sort of follow five prayers a day and you know all, all these sort of things. But that's not the kind of piety that would be sort of commonly practiced um, in, 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 in the villages where I've been working, where the language of piety is more uh, associated uh, with... Um, as you as you said, with Ramadan, for example, but also with participating in in the uh, outdoor annual prayers for rain, uh, mm. in as many prayers as possible, and they are organized according to the ritual calendar every week or so since the beginning of May till the end of August, um, and then. Um, and then there are these other practices, uh, these other forms of piety that I write about um, and you mentioned, such as, for example, uh, the, the practice uh, of the dream incubation prayers called istikara. Could, could, um, you, tell, could you tell us about that? It's, it's really interesting. I, I've never heard of that, honestly. What, what is it? Yeah, so actually uh, dreams uh, in Islam, it's, it's, a long, it's a long history. So from, from early... From early days of, of Islam, even even the Quran was revealed to the Prophet of Muhammad, to the Prophet Muhammad, through dreams. So dreams played an play an important part of Muslims Muslim lives everywhere. Uh, and and there is some interesting literature on this topic, um, also anthropological studies. And um, <clears throat> dreams are important in Islam because they they help. Um, Muslims uh, in their everyday life uh, with actually making decisions, making choices. Um, and in order to do that, uh, there, is, there, is, there is a particular form, uh, this dream incubation prayer, which is called istikhara, where you 
you you you pray a particular form of prayer before going to bed, and depending on what your then dream about, uh, you sort of try to make sense or decide uh, which uh, choice uh, is 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 the right one, and and people do practice it. <clears throat> when it comes to making marriage choices, but also when it comes to uh, taking exams, for example, or uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with particular afflictions. And as I, as I write about this dream healer that I uh, interviewed uh, many times and met uh, Sadata, uh, she also sees her role uh, as, as someone who has been given uh, this gift of 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 of, of dream dreaming for others, and right. and she links uh, this uh, gift uh, from God um, with what is happening in the post-war society. The fact that uh, neighbors are uh, sort of nasty to each other, stealing from each other, and she sees her capacity to dream for others also as a way. Uh, to somehow change or, or contribute to the change of society. So I, again, try, try to show how uh, the, the religious, if you will, and, and, the, and the post-war and political economy are, are actually deeply intertwined and people make sense through these particular uh, imaginaries and vocabularies to their lives in the present, such as, such as the healer and, and the people who actually do come and, and visit, visit her and ask for help. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's a perfect way for us to turn to anthropology, or at least to return to what what you're doing, both, let's say, in your empirical work and in your theoretical work. So, as an anthropologist and really an ethnographer and ethnologist um, who's doing work on rural societies, I, I would very much like to see more work done um, in this vein. What what would you like to see in in terms of studies of this count, almost like a counter history. You use the term counter history toward your conclusion. Mm. Um, how how do you envision that? I mean, what what would be your model or your advice for for other people setting out and doing similar projects like this, whether it's in Bosnia or, or elsewhere? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and um, I think we would need another podcast to to to, yeah, to deal we, with we that. for a few more hours, David. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. Um, <clears throat> I have been uh, for many years uh, in, inspired by uh, something what we might call um, anthropology or ethnography of, of history, and uh, it's 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 a it's a relatively I would say established field of study uh, um, in which uh, anthropologists like Michael Lambeck or Charles Stewart, to name but just two, have um, been sort of thinking and writing about the ways in which uh, people do make sense um, or make connections between the past, present, and the future um, in, in a culturally, if you, if you, if you will, uh, specific ways. What are the forms of cultural forms that, uh, cultural forms of mediation between the past and the present? Um, why is it important? Well, it is important because if you if you kind of follow uh, your interlocutors, how they actually uh, mediate between the past and the present, it often 
doesn't fit into the official historiographies, um, the language of official historiographies. Um, it um, often spans uh, across wider sort of historical sediments and, and strata um, than um, sort of mainstream sort of historiographies would, for example, sort of look at as being connected. Um, so it kind of ignores the established uh, periods, epochs, and so on. Um, and, and thirdly, uh, why I found it helpful is, that, is, is the fact that uh, places like Bosnia, historiography of Bosnia and anthropology of Bosnia as well, has been largely defined by particular critical events, yeah, the war, for example. <clears throat> And yet, uh, what uh, these counter-historicities kind of show is that rather than the war uh, being, or these critical events sort of being as the defining moments of, of, of people's sort of ways of being in history, uh, the counter-historicities sort of embrace these critical events as part of different temporalities, different ways of relating to the past in the present. Um, so they really kind of offer uh, an alternative way or alternative perspective on um, on how uh, people relate to the past and the present. Yeah, and and really, I mean, my follow up question to that is the question about violence, because I, I you know, as a historian, I teach this obviously for the twentieth century. Um, I, I was I was interested in your chapter, especially on prayer, on praying and witnessing, how. You capture stories, especially among um, women and, and wives and husbands in the village, how your interlocutors come to terms with the past, right? Mm-hmm. And this is this is the sort of you know German way of doing things, and it's been done to death. But there there is an analogy here, or, or as you call it, analogical orientation. So, mm-hmm. what what would happen, let's say, in these counter historicities if the centerpiece is not the war? That, that's really like my my way of being provocative, if I can. If the centerpiece for telling the stories of Islam or of Bosnian Islamic identity is not 1992 to 1995 or Yugoslav moder- modernization in the 1960s from that period forward, what is it? I mean, what is what is then, let's say, the magnet or or the lens through which to view? everyday life. How would you read that? Uh, well, that's a, that's a great question. And, uh, and uh, I, I would say that, uh, I mean, historical, historical horizons or horizons that sort of people kind of, uh, engage with to, to, to navigate this relationship between the past and the present to define who they are <clears throat> is obviously uh, is historically conditioned, right? It's it's kind of shifting. So, um, my honest answer would be that I don't know, um, because <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I don't know either. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, if it's not Srebrenica, what is it? So, um, I mean, but, it, is uh, it long, long, long history, cosmological sense of time? I, but I, don't I know. think I think uh, what is important. What I try to show is that. Uh, there are interesting, uh, there are interesting uh, kind of configurations through which people do make sense of it. So, so the, the war obviously does play a very important 
hard, but it, uh, the lived experience cannot be reduced only to it. Yeah? Um, and that's, uh, that's the sort of main sort of point of, you know, I'm trying to make. When I write uh, in this particular chapter that you mentioned uh, about uh, Srebrenica, I also I juxtapose it with, uh, with the local uh, annual commemorative service for the martyrs from the region. Yeah, right? I um, noticed that. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and there is a in in the ritual calendar. There is a particular date for it: uh, prayers for the Martin in Solun. Um, and what I what I what I what I try to to, to show is that this particular event is <clears throat> is as important as as for example Srebrenica. Uh, obviously, uh, Srebrenica is the most important for for my interlocutors uh, because of what what happened, the act of genocide. But uh, it's not just that. There, there there are also these local experiences of of of, of, of violence. Uh, since you ask about violence, but there are also, uh, as I mentioned in other parts of the book. There are still uh, villagers who who remember, for example, Second World War, uh, sure. and what yeah. happened. What happened in these villages? Yeah, I mentioned uh, my interlocutor, who unfortunately died a few years ago, uh, but he was he was close to hundred years old when um, when he, when he died, and 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 he was like fourteen, fifteen uh, when. Uh, when he when he experienced uh, Chetnik's attack on 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 the village, uh, how they were shouting, you know, burn the latrines so they can't even shit here anymore, and you know, these vivid yeah. memories of of that. Um, so uh, these are all kind of repertoires with which people do make sense of 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 um, of these events. Um, that's that's why the metaphor of Bedley Park car, right? It's something yeah. that is uh, that is felt and experienced um, in in all in all families. Yeah, yeah. So perfect. it's it's a shifting horizon, basically. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's a, that's perfect, David. And and I want to ask, since we're sort of running low on time, mm-hmm. um, really a, a two part question that I like to ask of all my featured authors here at New Books Network, and. The first one is, is what books you would recommend to our listeners, because we're on new books in Eastern European studies and new books, history and anthropology, maybe two or three books you could recommend. And then finally, what projects or books or articles you're working on now? Right. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's a very difficult question because uh, there are so many great books uh, out there. Uh, so uh, I don't want to... I don't want to offend anyone who I will not mention, but um, I will mention one about uh, about Bosnia uh, that was just kind of it coincided the publication with 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 mine, and it's uh, it's a it's a book by uh, by my uh, colleague and friend uh, Andrew Gilbert. Uh, which uh, deals with uh, humanitarian uh, humanitarian interventions uh, in in Bosnia after after the war, um, and it was just published uh, in 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 August uh, of this of this year. It's called International Intervention and the Problem of Legitimacy. 
encounters in post-war Bosnia. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, uh, when it comes to humanitarian interventions in Bosnia, it's, it's, it's a really, it's, it's the book to, to read. Um, then um, I, uh, I would also mention a book that uh, I find uh, really interesting. It's also related to Bosnia, but not only to Bosnia. It was published uh, either December last year or January this year. I'm always a bit confused about these dates. Uh, by uh, Daryl Lee, um, uh, who is an anthropologist um, and also attorney and lawyer uh, from the University of Chicago. His book is called uh, Univer Universal Enemy. And um, he, uh, he traced uh, uh, foreign fighters, um, sometimes also known as uh, Mujahideens, but uh, it's not necessarily the right label, uh, but who, who actually spent some time in, in, in Bosnia during the war, but also in other wars uh, since then. And, and he situates, he situates uh, their life stories uh, in the context of the global war on terror. Um, so it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting uh, book as well. Um, and uh, <clears throat> then the third book I will mention, uh, which is related also to the things I'm working on uh, at the moment, uh, I'll mention uh, Josh Reno, uh, Reno's book uh, called Military Waste. Um, and he's looking uh, into, into the military expenditure and uh, military complex, uh, especially in the U.S. Uh, but uh, he's looking at it from the perspective of wastefulness, wasting, so in terms of sort of money, how much money is spent on it. Um, on military preparation, but also what kind of waste in terms of materiality of, of, of military preparation mm. uh, is sort of created. Well, uh, yeah. And it's, it's related to my new project, which is not completely new because I've published a couple of articles on it already. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm interested uh, in... Um, in Basically, environmental, um, if, you, if you will, environmental damage and environmental consequences of military conflicts, uh, what kind yeah, of landscape well. they, they create. Um, and again, it's, it's linked to my experiences of work in Bosnia, where many villages where I've been doing field work are still surrounded by landmine fields. Um, mm. But not just landmine fields, but uh, even 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 trees in the forest are full of shrapnel and bullets and and, and things like that. Um, so um, they create particular landscapes and uh, military conflicts. So I'm sort of interested in the afterlife of 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 these of this kind of military waste um, that has been left behind by yeah. the war. And it has its own social life as well. So, for example, the recent migration, migration, so-called migration crisis uh, through the Balkan route, uh, where there are, there is a huge number of people stuck in north uh, northwest Bosnia on the Croatian-Bosnian border. Um, it's in the areas that are now also full of landmines. So uh, those those. Wow. guys yeah. who are trying to cross the border illegally are often sort of and you know end up uh, ending up in in landmine fields 
So it has yeah, these yeah, kind yeah. of unexpected consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- thank you, David, for, for sharing those. I, I think our listeners will be be really interested um, to follow up on that. I want to thank you for joining us, David. Really, um, this has been such a pleasure to talk to you about your book, uh, and I hope we can do it again. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, uh, here at New Books Network, and we've been speaking with Professor David Hennig, who is the author of a new book out with Illinois University of Illinois Press 2020. The book is called Remaking Muslim Lives, Everyday Islam in Postwar Bosnia and Herzegovina. Thanks for joining us, and we'll hear from you again.